Welcome everyone to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Samino, and with me as sometimes as a very special guest. You know him from our crime miniseries. You know him from Armageddon. You know him from A Star is Born. Many of our great, great recent episodes. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Chris. Hello, Dr. Chris. How are you? It's Dr. Chris San to you now. <laughs> That's right. He's coming to us live from Japan, the land of the rising sun. Yeah, what a what an interesting transition we're making from crime movies to documentaries about the 08 financial crisis. It's actually quite apropos. <laughs> yeah, the bigger the biggest crimes of all, really. We were just talking about that off mic. How horrific these crimes really are, as you can tell from the name of this episode and from what Chris just said. We are talking about two movies that discuss the 2008 financial crisis in their own way. Those movies are Margin Call and Inside Job. One is a regular old drama, and one is a documentary. They're both, I think, very good in their own ways. We wanted to find a, you know, fictional and a non-fiction version of this story to talk about. And, Chris, the reason we wanted to discuss this is because we did our little crime series, and I know you've been reading a lot about this during your travels, being over there in Japan now on the big flights. And, like, it, I know it really struck your fancy. It seems like you just really wanted to understand what was going on here, why it was so horrible, and why it set us on this path that we're sort of still on right now. Yeah, what, one of the quotes that got me really interested in this topic is um, Matt Taibbi, who's who's a re- kind of an independent reporter. I think he works for Rolling Stone now, but he's written a bunch of books about a bunch of interesting topics. And he wrote a book called Griftopia uh, about the 07 financial crisis that I, I'm reading. And I watched an interview with him and, and the interviewer asked him, you know, how did you understand this crazy web? Because uh, Matt Taibbi admittedly said, I knew nothing about any of this before I came into to, uh, reporting it. And he said the best advice he got that helped him to understand what happened is when an investment banker that was a source said to him, stop thinking of this as a finance story and start thinking of it as a crime story. And when I heard Matt Taibbi say that, it kind of piqued my interest. And I started kind of just diving into uh, both his book and then Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short. I watched a bunch of movies on it, more YouTube videos than I, I care to admit, uh, to try to understand exactly what happened. And it's probably been about a month's worth of like amateur research to be able to give me some basic understanding of what the hell happened and how we got to the 08 financial crisis. And it's a fascinating and infuriating story. And we'll get into a little bit of that today. And I know we don't want to turn this pod into a four-day-long pod about you know what what exactly happened. If we worked off um, the notes you sent me, it would be a very lengthy episode indeed. Yeah, exactly. Doctor yep. Chris has uh, really put his uh, what's it called to the grindstone on this one and and turned churned out a ton of stuff. And man, you you know way more than I even want to know. I think about this. Well, but interestingly, I still feel like. I've reached the le- like the, the language capability of, of Amy from Congo. <laughs> I, I, I'm basically just using my ape sign language and my little arm toy to sign out what exactly is happening. <laughs> that is my level of comprehension. So, well, Chris, before we get use use your Amy skills and see if you because I know this is a long time ago and most people listening may have seen Inside Job, may have seen Margin Call, certainly remember 08 but probably don't, you know, know a lot of the logistics. And a lot of the logistics is a bit much, but if you can condense it down for people, what, how would you be able to sum up, you know, what happened, why it happened, and sort of what all the the, the bullet points are? 
Sure. So uh, I'm going to try to distill this as best I can. Um, the, there's kind of two concepts to, to understand because we're going to use the terms a lot as we talk about the movies. The first is when you hear the word security. So what is a security? When we say security, what we mean is it's essentially any sort of instrument that has monetary value that can be traded or bought or sold. So we're going to say the term mortgage-backed security a thousand times on this podcast. What that essentially says is it's something that can actually be used in a tangible way on the stock market. Um, the other thing you have to understand is the difference between what a bond is and what just gambling is. So a bond is, in short, uh, let's say the city wants to build a bridge. They sell bonds, which if Steve is going to buy the bond, he pays $10 for the bond from the city. The city now has $10 to use to put towards this bridge. And there's a certain amount of interest that will be accrued during the period that the bond is, is, is worth. So the bond has a due date, essentially, that the city has to pay Steve back. So, you know, Steve gives us $10, he gets his bond. Ten years later, Steve gets $11 back, and the city has built its bridge. And not only does Steve get a 10% uh, profit off this bond, the city that he lives in now has a new tangible thing in the bridge. What is an important concept to understand when, under when talk talking about what happened is the idea of gambling instead of, like, traditional bond trading. Let's say me and my friend Walt want to bet on Steve's bond that he bought. We bet one another, and I bet Walt that the bridge will never get built, and Walt bets that the bridge will get built. We've now made a bet based on the, the outcome of Steve's bond or Steve's uh, you know, uh, investment. One of us will get money, but no one else benefits. There is no tangible benefit to that bet between me and Walt. It's only one or the other of us gaining profit. And this wasn't a thing for a while. This is a relatively recent turn of events that that became an option, right? So, yeah. So that kind of leads into the next couple important broad stroke points. The banking industry exploded in the 80s. Uh, it doubled its share of overall business profits from, I believe, like 20% to 40% in a very short period of time. And so they kept looking for new ways to make money because the American manufacturing sector was shrinking. And so some of these new, like, inventive ways to make profit uh, play themselves out here in the financial crisis and, like, what we're going to talk about. Um, a couple other points to remember as we go into this story. Uh, one of the ways this was allowed to happen is that the banking industry was very, very deregulated starting in the 80s and carried through through Reagan, through George H.W. Bush, through Clinton, and into George W. Bush, who was president during the, uh, the financial crisis. One of the ways they were deregulated is that banks were allowed to increase their leverage. And what does that mean? They were able to increase their debt to capital ratio. So if a bank previously was able to have, let's say, a five to one debt to capital ratio, they could borrow up to five times the total value of their company. Uh, one of the deregulations that occurred, though, was that these banks were now allowed to go to 10, 20, 30, as high as 200 to 1 leverage. So they were able to have 200 times the debt compared to the value of their actual company. That's a very important point to remember uh, when we think about how this all crashed so quickly. 
Another thing that happened is that the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed that essentially opened the door for uh, the banking industry to become integrated in commercial banking, investment banking, and insurance all into one pot rather than separated and kept each, you know, keeping each, each business safe. Which was under Bill Clinton as well, so let's, we should note that for the record, that this is not a conservative uh, issue as, as easy as it will be to paint it that way. It certainly was not the case. Yes. And then uh, the, the last point I want to make, and just as preface, is that there was something called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000. This is maybe the most important thing to remember for this specific financial crash, because in that act, something called derivatives and specifically something called collateralized debt obligations, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, this act prevented those from having any regulation whatsoever. So everything done with derivatives or credit uh, CDOs or collateralized debt obligations, there was no oversight, there was no regulation. So these are kind of important things to keep in mind as how we set the table for how the financial crisis happened. So I'm going to try to sum up the events of the actual crash as quickly as I can, and Steve will stop me from getting too in the weeds here. <laughs> So basically, in the 1970s, somebody wanted to figure out a way to make money off of mortgages. Mortgages were a very safe investment. And the reason is, uh, if Steve wants to buy a house, Steve walks down to a mortgage broker, the mortgage broker talks to a commercial bank. That, you know, Historically, the commercial bank was on the hook for Steve's mortgage. So the commercial bank would make sure Steve was a safe investment. Did he have a job? He had provable income. Did he have a good credit score? Had Steve ever defaulted on a loan previously? Because the the commercial bank that issued the mortgage assumed the risk of Steve. And so because the commercial bank did all this background checking and, and making sure that Steve was a, a safe investment, mortgages themselves were a fairly safe thing, fairly safe entity. The other reason they were safe is because the housing market always went up. It was very rare for the housing market to ever go down. So let's say Steve defaulted on his mortgage. The bank still had an asset in the house that, in theory, would continue to grow in, in value. And the value of the house, let's say Steve defaults three years into his mortgage, the value of the house three years later is, in theory, higher than the debt still owed on the house. So that's kind of the basis of the safety or the perceived safety of both the mortgage market and the housing market as we enter the, the financial crash of 2008. So in the 70s, somebody got the bright idea that if we took not just one, but let's take a thousand of these mortgages in, let's just say, Ames, Iowa, middle of the Midwest, we're going to package them all together. And then we are going to off, we're going to uh, turn them into a security. And remember, I mentioned a security is something that can now be bought and sold on markets. And this was seen to be a very, very safe investment. So the commercial bank takes this bundle of mortgages from Ames, Iowa, goes to an investment bank and says, I'll sell you this. You take these things off my hands. And then there's a transaction fee that allows somebody to make some money. The investment banks, seeing that mortgages and the housing market are safe investments historically, are happy to do that. So they buy up all of these uh, these mortgages. This is what's called a mortgage-backed security or an MBS. And that term is really important as we go into 
how the financial crisis happened. Was that a safe thing at one point? Was there a world when this was smaller scale where that was not the craziest thing to do and then it just spiraled out of control or was that just asking for trouble from the start, do you think? Great question. So the, the, the answer is yes, it was safe. And it was safe because historically both the housing market and the mortgage market were safe entities. Where I think the seeds of the uh, bad practices that eventually happened, the seeds of that are that the risk was now shifted away from the commercial bank selling the mortgage and placed on an investment bank. Um, So kind of going forward with this, over time, the big investment banks realized how profitable these mortgage-backed securities were. So they started telling the commercial banks, hey, get us more mortgages, get us more mortgage-backed securities. And kind of fast forward a few years, a few decades, now we're in the early 2000s. Um, The commercial banks are now incentivized to sell more and more mortgages because again, the risk is no longer with them. If they could get an investment bank to buy whatever mortgages they've sold, it doesn't matter anymore to that commercial bank whether the person who bought the mortgage is a good investment or not. So now we're starting to sell mortgages, not just to people that have proven income, that are buying a house they can afford, that have a good credit score. We're selling mortgages to literally anyone with a pulse. So Michael Lewis uses this example, I believe, in, um, in uh, uh, The Big Short. There was a California strawberry farmer making $14,000 a year that was not a U.S. citizen and did not speak a word of English. And he got a $700,000 mortgage. So you can, just from that example, you can understand how kind of the practices of selling the loans became very loose. Is that the same family that was cited in the inside job they show for a brief second? It might have been. I can't you get a very brief snippet of at least, at least a very yeah. similar story of a family that did not speak English and was given a mortgage they could not afford, and they did not realize even totally what was going on, and of course it went belly up and was a nightmare. So I'm sure right. many, many stories along those lines. And where the commercial banks and the mortgage brokers are also very, I think there's a criminal element to their side of this. This is when like predatory lending practices started happening, and they were actually going after people who didn't understand what was happening. They were targeting people of color. They were targeting immigrants. It's really actually a very dirty story the deeper you go into that. So anyway, you can imagine if a mortgage-backed security is built on the back of a 1,000 mortgages, the more of those mortgages that are shitty, the worse the mortgage-backed security gets. So that's, again, an important concept to understand how this all collapsed. Um, So... The, uh, the mortgage-backed securities are rated by what are supposed to be independent rating agencies, which is like Moody's or Standards & Poor's. A AAA rating is the best rating, and then it goes to AA, single A, triple B, AA, et cetera. The reason these ratings are important is because uh, different funds that want to invest, like let's say your parents' pension fund wants to invest in something. There, there's laws that say they can only invest in something that's like AAA rated. And so everyone, the, the machinery that allows things to be safe investments for things like for everyday people, again, like, like retirement funds, pension funds, et cetera, is those rating agencies giving an honest rating. Unfortunately, as we, you, know, you see in the documentaries, the rating agencies got these wrong. Part of the reason they got them wrong is because they're paid by the investment firms. They're not independent bodies that are non-for-profit. 
and they are grilled for that <laughs> to a certain extent in Inside Job. And and like many yes. of the people in that documentary, they have no answer for it beyond like whoopsie doopsies, we made a mistake. So unfortunately, they because these mortgage-backed securities, uh, which soon were, and I don't want to go too deep into what a CDO is, but a collateralized debt obligation is a derivative off of a mortgage-backed security where you take the most risky parts of a mortgage-backed security, and these are, it's split up by what are called tranches. And the tranches are just sep essentially separations based on risk. So the lowest level tranche, the riskiest tranche, they would take that and they would essentially, it's like taking the worst part of a chicken, putting it in a grinder, and out pops a McDonald's chicken nugget. That's what a CDO is. A CDO is the shitty, the shitty parts of a, a, a mortgage-backed security, and then they repackage it, resell it as this new thing, and somehow it was able to get a AAA rating, even though these CDOs were filled with horrible mortgages that were bound to go under. And so the investment banks kept investing in these CDOs because of the short-term profit. Unfortunately, a lot of these shitty mortgages Part of the reason they were shitty is because they had what were called uh, introductory and floating interest rates. So a good mortgage would have a reasonable fixed interest rate. So you can plan out how much you're going to have to pay for your mortgage. These bad mortgages would have an introductory interest rate that the buyer of the mortgage could pay. Two years later, that interest rate skyrockets. And now all of a sudden, these people can't pay their mortgage. They go into default. The mortgage is now worthless. So that's an another that's another extremely important thing to remember that at a certain period, a certain point, a certain percentage, I believe it was eight percent of these mortgages became in default because the floating floating interest rates skyrocketed. No one could pay their mortgage anymore. That's essentially how the mortgage industry went under um, is because of these mortgage-backed securities and CDOs being filled with bad mortgages. The interest rates shot up after the introductory rate ended. And now you have a bunch of CDOs and mortgage-backed securities that are absolutely worthless. And you have a bunch of big banks that invested heavily in these mortgage-backed securities and CDOs for short-term profit. So that's the, mortgage, that's the mortgage market. And then why did the housing market crash? Well, because there was so much uh, of a, a rush to build houses because everyone thought the housing market would continue to go up and there was a big bubble uh, because there was so much cash available for mortgages, eventually you had more houses than people that actually needed the houses. So the supply outweighed the demand. Additionally, once people started defaulting on their mortgages, a bunch of neighborhoods had vacant houses. Vacant houses caused depression in, in, uh, in housing prices. And so housing prices, because of those two factors, basically fell off of a cliff. Um, and that's how, in a very you know, a two-sentence explanation of how the housing market also crashed along with the uh, the mortgage market. So that's a, and we're going to, we'll talk a little bit more about credit default swaps later in the pod. That's an important concept to understand if you want to understand the entire documentary of, of Inside Job and, and how exactly AIG and like all these big companies went down so quickly. So Steve, that is the primer for us going into uh, Inside Job. Yeah, and I think that's super detailed and 
complicated stuff, but the reason I thought it was so useful for you to do that is the movie has to do that too. The movie does even more than you just did right there. The inside job really tackles all the information you gave, but lays the groundwork of how they got there for, you know, decades before it. And it is a huge undertaking. If you don't know Inside Job, you should absolutely see it. It's directed by a guy named Charles Ferguson. He also wrote it and produced it. Matt Damon narrates it. A ton of the people involved in the crisis or professors or other smart people in the financial world are involved in it. And they set up just what Chris set up here and they try and make it a very accessible idea. And it's a lot. You know, it's hearing Chris condense it into 10 or so minutes is impressive in its own right but the movie has so much to tackle and you know Chris you obviously know what you, you've done your homework you've read books you've watched other documentaries you've consumed stories like you you understand this really well inside job is coming at people who certainly have not done the homework that you've done and I am curious to get your take like you just went over all this stuff like how well do you think it does in condensing all the things you just said into a like comprehensive and yet digestible format for people to to consume so I walked away from this the first time I watched it and I watched it when it first came out uh, it felt like someone had taken a giant back when we had paper syllabuses uh, when you and I were in college or medical school and they dropped this giant syllabus on your desk now the syllabus may be comprehensive and well put together but it would take a while to actually you know digest the entire syllabus so I view this documentary as that syllabus. And while I think it takes a couple watches and some back, you know, background reading to fully understand what you're looking at, I think in terms of just giving a comprehensive overview of what happened, why it happened, how it happened in a, what is it? A, what are we talking? A tight one, tight yeah. 100 more or less? <laughs> we got a tight 108 on this one. We got a tight 108, yeah. <laughs> In a tight 108, I think is actually a Herculean. It's a pretty tight 108, I would say. Like it yeah. is not. It really doesn't drag. It's if if it drags, it's just because it's like you said, it's a lot of information. Like it's just it's data overload more than bad movie. Yeah, because they're 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 taking on so many different parts of how this happened in a single piece of of art. The lead up, the crash itself, the immediate reaction. Uh, what are the long term changes that that could have happened that didn't? And then I think maybe both of our favorite parts of it was they do a really good job of illustrating this like really dirty menage a trois of finance, academia, government and lobbying, and then the finance world itself. And so in terms of it being as, as best as someone can humanly do in a single 108 minute movie, explaining all of those different aspects of an extraordinary comp extraordinarily complex issue i thought it's a home run i really do it's it really is and i think it helped a lot this time sort of as you said i saw this as well i believe back in if not 2010 and 2011 somewhere right after this had happened and i enjoyed it but it was complicated and it was it was one of those things i watched and went huh and that that was a lot and it sounds horrible and i sort of get it and then i didn't really dive deeper watching it again here to talk about with you i was able to and plus with you know uh years in between smarter more knowledgeable on, in general of what they're talking about i was able to consume it with a little more context and just able to focus on the things i could tell were important and not pay so much attention to the minutiae but i will say one thing that i like about this movie sort of what you're getting at is there it's 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 a movie that clearly is is aggressively opposed to the people who got us into this 
But at the same time, there's an objectivity that's still there because these people fucked up the economy and ruined the world. Like, it's not like they, 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 they a lot of the people in this movie, kudos to some of them for coming into it because they were part of this fuck up and they, they stand there and try and answer questions and maybe take some of their medicine or maybe try and explain themselves. But they, no one has a leg to stand on because even if they're being, a, even if Charles Ferguson is given the business as well, he should, like they fucked this up. Like they can claim they had good intentions or this used to work or this should have worked or were you know da 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 but at the end of the day the economy went in the shitter and it was all because of stuff like this you know like so I think this is it's, just, it's very hard I could not imagine unless I was a hyper rich crazy person being on the side of the financiers and the bankers and the academics and anyone who who has any sort of positive reinforcement to say about the choices made that document in this movie because they all fucked up and they ruined the world and so I think this movie does a very good job of calling them out when need be and Charles Ferguson in particular in all the interviews like he lay, he gives he asked them he's clearly very knowledgeable on it as well of course and he asked them very direct very straightforward questions and they just don't know what to say in response because the proof is in the pudding they made these choices and this whole system collapsed as a result I think what you're seeing with those those gentlemen and I've got them all written down here we don't have to go into all their names but who is your least favorite who do you hate the most Oh God! Who it's hard to say. Let's see. <laughs> you know their names. I know. I know the gist of who I hate, but I'm curious which one stands out to you as the biggest monster. So I called these uh, guys the cadre of academic douchebags. Um, <laughs> Is it the Columbia guy? The Columbia guy's pretty bad. Yeah, let me. He's okay. such a dick in it too. He just. He... I'm sorry. Let me let me adjust that. I called it the douchebag academic cadre, <laughs> um, which has got Fred Mishkin and. You know, Michigan just sounds like one of those dirty things you learned about in baseball dugout that doesn't actually happen in real life. Uh, but actually to give someone the Michigan is probably even worse uh, because you also drain their bank account uh, in addition to whatever vile sexual thing you've done. Um, so I think my least favorite was Fred Michigan. He, he just gets fucking crushed. Oh. You know, Ferguson goes after this guy hard. I and mean, his excuse for why he left the SEC in the middle of a, uh, of a financial crisis was because he had to edit a textbook. Yeah. I mean, and just, Charles Ferguson is like, I know, I'm sure your textbook is widely read, dude. But <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, and then you've got Mark Feldstein, Glenn Hubbard, Laura Tyson. These are, and I, I don't mean to like name drop these like I knew who they were. I had no idea who these people no, were. No, but you learn about you. There's a couple of those hey. names that stand out to me, even just having watched it a few days ago. You, by the end of this documentary, there's a few of them that you were like, I fucking hate this person now. I did not know them two hours ago, and now I hate them. Like, and I think that's very effectively done. I think the I, I think Michigan wins just like. The, the one who comes off worst in a moment in that movie, I think Larry Summers and um, Alan Greenspan are the two that probably come off worst big, you know, big picture long-term because at least the way Ferguson depicts Summers, not only was he part of the group of people that endorsed the type of deregulation that allowed this to happen in the first place. He also appeared to like very fervently fight back against anyone who tried to tell him that he was wrong. Uh, I think that's something Ferguson gets across really well in the uh, in the documentary. So, but it's it's funny. I think that's maybe the most entertaining part of it is you. It's almost you're hate watching it, uh, but you just love how he holds these guys to account, even if it's just for a few seconds on television. These guys 
have this look on their face like, okay, somebody else knows. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing that. And you could just, you get the sense from, you know, being rich and successful and powerful that they don't get called out very often. It seems like they are, they feel above reproach. And I think one thing the movie reinforces in a very depressing way is something you sort of hinted at at the beginning. They, they present themselves and the things they do and the financial systems they've created as impenetrable to the modern person, you know, like, Oh, you just wouldn't get it. So we'll get us into this mess. Oops. We fucked up our bad. We'll get you out of it now. Like it's, infuriating and it does not have to be this way and what you just described in sort of your little intro here is just proof that they just they made up a bunch of shit and they took a lot of risks they didn't have to take and then they have the gall to act like it's all fine and good and we wouldn't understand and they need to keep being in power and I don't know if we want to get into this at this point because it's sort of early in the podcast, but the insufferable part is they remain in power in a lot of ways. None of them were prosecuted. No one went to prison. It, almost everyone and many of them still run shit today. And uh, it's it's uh, th- though it is satisfying to see them called out by a documentarian, it's a fleeting satisfaction because the, all it meant was they were uncomfortable for 45 seconds. Then they went back to being fabulously wealthy and powerful and didn't give a shit anymore. Yeah. yeah, and again, it's the, the the word that keeps coming in my head is is hubris. I think hubris is what allowed them to even think it was okay to be on this documentary, because I do think if you just surround yourself in a bubble of your own peers and you have no dissenting opinions, it's inevitable. I think it's very human to eventually see yourself as the hero, see what you're doing as the right thing to do. And see anyone who dissents as simply being ignorant, not fully understanding what's happening, or, you know, they themselves are just wrong, just flat wrong. And that's why I think a lot of these guys agreed to these interviews is because they've spent so many years and decades even being surrounded by like-minded people who all of them together led the charge for the deregulation of the financial system that led to this problem. Now, which one of them, you know, pulled the trigger of the gun, so to speak. I don't know. It's hard to really say, but how many of them, you know, built the gun that pulled that the trigger was pulled on all of them. And the one thing that I I did like that Ferguson did with these guys is whenever he's, you know, you see clips of Paulson or whatever, Oh, you know, I'm just dealing with the hand I was dealt. None of us could see this coming, but Ferguson does a very good job of interviewing people like this this uh, guy, Rajan, who is the chief economist at the IMF. He's like, oh, no, no, no. I wrote a really long paper and I presented it to all of them. Bernanke, Paulson, Geithner, Summers, Greenspan, all of them were at this forum that he presented it at. And they told him to go fuck himself. Like these, the, the idea that these guys couldn't have seen this coming or no one raised an alarm to them that this was going to happen is laughable. And Ferguson does an excellent job of showing that. So, so then on top of the idea that, you know, Ferguson illustrates that these guys did have someone, at least one person and many more raising the alarm at, at these finance practices and how they could lead to economic doom while they were telling these people to go fuck themselves, all of them were making millions and millions of dollars off the corrupt system they had built. Uh, so like Phil Graham, for example, one of the congressmen who stopped the regulation of derivatives, later joins UBS and makes millions. Larry Summers makes millions. These two guys from Columbia that he interviewed make hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for the same financial institutions that short-term benefited from the stances they took 
uh, as academic, you know, quote unquote academics, or many of them were in government for a period of time uh, that were nominally supposed to be looking out for our interests as our employees in government, all of them made out, all of them made money uh, building this corrupt system. Uh, and, and they all push back the so they push back so hard on the idea that they should expose their conflicts of interest as well. Which, as a physician, I have to like that's something with me, and I'm not even related to that. I can I have to imagine that boiled your blood with all that you medical. And then they reference this directly in in the movie. We ask uh, we ask uh, medical research. We want everyone to reveal any personal fees or grants or anything you've gotten from any pharmaceutical because we want to know if maybe you've been influenced. But when all these people in are in the financial industry and places of power in government or otherwise, no one, they, they feel like they don't have to tell anybody who they're working for, who they're getting money from, what's going on. Like, that's fucking disgusting. Like, why, why is it different for them? Like, why have we decided that finance does not, like, it's, it's more, it's worse, like, yes, bad medicine gets us sick, but this is there's no clear indication of what bad finance can do than this crisis. Like it's just it's it it, it ruins people's lives and to to not acknowledge your part in it before, during, or after is gross. I think the the comparison they use is you know Doctor X uh, tells a patient to take this drug uh, shouldn't doctor or writes a paper saying that we should use this drug to treat this illness. And Dr. X gets 80% of their income from the maker of that drug. Doesn't a patient have the right to know that? And it's a great comparison. And no one on earth, I can't imagine anyone would disagree with that being a conflict of interest. And yet all these guys at Harvard and Columbia shrug their shoulders and they say, oh, well, finance is a different thing. But I don't think it's really in dispute that, yeah, personal health and What's going on in your body is obviously a very, very blunt, uh, personal thing that can harm you immediately. But the draining of your savings account can do a significant damage to you. The draining of your retirement account or your pension can do significant damage to you and your family. And we see in the United States all the time that economic prosperity is correlated with physical prosperity, the prosperity of your children. So to, to kind of brush it off as though it's a, it's a separate thing that can't harm people in the same way that a drug could, I think is arrogant. I think it's short-sighted and it's beneficial to their, to their bottom line, right? It's, uh, it's also in their self-interest to take these stances, their financial self-interest. And I think that you know this and many other points in the documentary point to a very important point or the very important concept that we need to kind of understand that money, success are not correlated in any way whatsoever with morality. We have a tendency in this country to ascribe morality to people who are financially successful. And it's just asinine to think that that's true, that the free market can can solve any ill. Some ills in society require morality. They require a sacrifice or they require a thinking of the greater good over personal gain. Some do, and that's why societies are built on portions of it, which are capitalistic, portions of it, which are socialistic. You know, anybody in the United States who thinks we're a purely capitalist society is ignorant. They haven't been paying attention. The road you drove to work in, you know, on today, the school your kid goes to, the Social Security check your parents and grandparents are getting, those are all aspects of socialism. 
uh, it doesn't mean we are a socialistic society. It means we have taken a, an, a concept derived from socialism and applied it to our society for the greater good. And so I, I, I think anybody who goes into this documentary with a really kind of misguided notion of the purely capitalistic society they think we live in in the United States and the pure good that a purely capitalist you know, society that doesn't actually exist that they think they're living in. I hope this documentary allows them to walk away realizing that pure capitalism uh, and relying on people who become the, the commanders or the generals or the, uh, the gods of, this, of capitalism in our society, relying on them to look out for the greater good of all is a terrifying concept. So what do you think, in your opinion, obviously a lot of these things frustrate you, and they frustrate me as well. What bothers you the most? What, what did you learn or what did you see where you're just like, I can't believe this is a thing that we allowed to happen? So the thing that probably pissed me off the most is I remember we were adults in 08. I think we had, I had just graduated college. We're, in the, we're roughly the same age, so I think you did as well. We were old enough to, to watch the news and hear the talking heads. And I specifically remember uh, hearing people talk about how this is the fault of the people for buying houses they couldn't afford or, or getting uh, mortgages they couldn't afford. But the thing that I walked away from this also understanding, when you learn how these guys had deregulated the market and they were able to over leverage themselves. Remember at the beginning of the podcast, they brought up the term of leverage. These companies were paying for all of this, all of this uh, speculation, all of this profit they were getting by buying mortgage-backed securities and CDOs and credit default swaps that we'll go into later. All of that stuff that was getting them short-term profit, uh, fee, you know, fees upon fees, high uh, CEO uh, bonuses, all of that stuff was done in debt. They were all over leveraged. They were all 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to one debt to capital ratio as they were doing all this stuff. So the audacity of a talking head telling the American people, you bought a house you couldn't afford, you took on a mortgage or an interest rate you couldn't afford, you didn't look at the fine print to find out that your introductory mortgage rate would become a floating mortgage uh, interest rate and go through the roof. The audacity of that, while these assholes who, who designed the system were leveraged at 20, 30, or 40 to one of debt to capital, that might be the most infuriating part of all this to me. Because as you saw in the movie, they are paying lobbyists uh, on the order of billions of dollars to spin these, these narratives, not just to politicians who then parrot them out to the American people, but also to things like CNBC. So this narrative is built that it wasn't ex actually their fault. It's the fault of the people who are irresponsible with their money, even though these people were practicing extraordinarily short-sighted, stupid, and irresponsible financial practices themselves. Man, that's a great point. And I don't know what it is, meaning I don't know if it's a human tendency or an American tendency. But this sort of thing happens all the time. Like, what jumps out to me is like with climate change, where they'll be like, 
turn your air conditioner off or like don't do this or don't do that like make a personal impact but like it's not like that all that things are fun or even like with covid where they're like everyone who's going out and doing this and that is causing the problem and like yes you you can be better with your energy you certainly can be better with covid and not get people around you sick but like this so much of these things fall on the people in power so many of these things fall especially especially something like this where they are a hundred percent doing something uh, mischievous at best and, and extending themselves beyond all reasonableness at best. Like there is no fine line. There is no like reasonable element here. Like it's a hundred percent. They know what they're doing. They know they're taking a chance. They're selling it as safe. They could see the warning signs and they don't listen to them. And like, it's the most, it's, it's an absurd example of, of them spinning it back and saying personal choice, personal preference. You're the one you shouldn't have gotten that house. Like you're the reason the world economy collapsed. Like, or even, even, a hundred of you, a thousand of you, like that's not how this works. There are people pulling the strings, there are people in power who do not take responsibility for their actions, and their actions have huge ramifications. And it's like, it's one of the scary things about the world we live in and the globalization of the economy and just seeing how it all comes together is what we did had ripple effects everywhere. And like, it, Inside Job does a really, in, in a really nice way, shows how. You know, when a when a firm shuts down in America, goes bankrupt, it goes bankrupt around the world. Like other countries have other rules that we don't factor into account or know about or care about. And all of a sudden, even beyond just the markets falling apart, like businesses falling apart, money falling apart, like it all comes falling down so easily. And like the 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 arrogance, as you said, and the disgusting nature of that is so much of it that they're just hitting these buttons and doing these things and not considering the ramifications of their of their choices, which are ample worldwide. And it's just, and no one cares until it's too late. And even then, as the documentary also shows, they don't take responsibility for it. Well, and that, you know, it's, it's an important point to bring up is, uh, where is the accountability for all these decisions, both big and small? So the average Joe Schmo that bought a house that maybe he couldn't afford, that took on a mortgage that maybe he didn't do enough investigating into, that dude paid a price. That dude defaulted on his house. That dude was probably evicted. That dude may have lost his job. That dude's credit score is now tanked. That dude now has to carry with him to any future mortgage broker that he goes in, that he talks to, that he's defaulted on a house before. That dude paid a price. So, you know, it, it, these people that, that want to talk about the morality of all of this, who, whatever uh, they think the individual that that bought the house, bought the mortgage, whatever responsibility they think that they bear, that dude paid the price. Who didn't pay the price were the CEOs and the higher-ups in these banking industries that actually walked away with bonuses after all of this. So I just, that's maybe the most infuriating point of, of the film. So I know you said that, you know, the, the and, and in both in real life and the documentary, it's, it's hard to say who pulled the trigger. You can't put the blame on a person or a firm even or anything like that because it was so multifaceted. But who do you think, what is the most criminal element of this? What is like the, what, what, if does anything jump out at you as, as that you can point somewhat of a finger at and say, that's why this happened? Maybe not a person or, a, or an entity, but just a, an idea that really pushed it over the edge. Yeah, and this is where the concept of the credit default swap comes in. Um, so in layman's terms or in a two-sentence explanation, something that took me like a week of reading to understand, a credit default swap is essentially insurance or placing a bet. So 
you know, I think they use this metaphor in the documentary, uh, but let's say you, Steve, own a house. You can buy a fire insurance policy on that house, and that's normal. And if the house burns down, you own the house that burned down. You get paid from the entity that sold you the, the insurance policy. What happened in the market, though, is that not only did you buy, you know, could you buy insurance on that house, anybody else that walked by your house and saw it could say, I want to buy a fire policy on that house. And the market allowed it. So I could buy a fire insurance policy on your house burning down. So this is what a credit default swap is. When somebody buys a CDO or a mortgage-backed security, a credit default swap is a way to insure against the failure of that um, CDO or mortgage-backed security. So if I buy a CDO and I'm worried about how high quality it is, I buy a, uh, an insurance policy on that thing so that if it fails, I have protection. It mitigates my loss. So the, different, the, the, the irresponsibility of this, and this is where like AIG collapsed, AIG was selling these insurance policies on mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps. But using the house analogy, instead of just having one fire policy on your house, Steve, they were selling the same policy to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other people. So that if your house burned down, not only did you, they have to pay you, they had to pay ten other people that had a policy on your house burning down. So the the criminality in this or the, the true fraud in this is that a lot of these big banks figured out that the assets they had were shit. The CDOs that were made up uh, of these mortgages were absolute shit, and they figured it out. And when they figured it out, they sold them off to people while still rating them AAA. So people bought these shit things with a AAA rating thinking, I'm buying a good bond or I'm buying a good CDO, I'm buying a good mortgage-backed security. After selling them, they then went and got a credit default swap on that thing that they just sold as a AAA. So again, getting back to the house analogy, this is like, I own a house. I know it is a tinderbox. It is soaked in gasoline. I then sell it to you, Steve, and say, no, it's an incredible house. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no chance it'll ever burn down. Triple A rated house. The moment you buy the house from me, I then go and get a fire insurance policy because I know it's about to fucking burn down. And that's what a lot of these banks did. They sold shit knowing it was going to burn down. And then they immediately bought a credit default swap or an insur a fire insurance policy so that when it did burn down, they all got paid. And that to me is probably the most gross part of this. And it's a good lead into uh, margin call because margin call depicts this very thing happening. I was going to say the, the main crux of the movie, the biggest scene in the movie, what it all ultimately builds to is similar to what you're describing. I don't, you know, you know, the ins and outs more than I do, but to my untrained eye, that's what they're getting at is what the scene in margin. And if you haven't seen margin call, it is a 2011 drama about the financial crisis, about 2008, about the everything falling apart. It's directed by JC Chandor, who went on to make a few movies, including a most violent year and all is lost. This was his first movie. It's very good. It got an Academy Award nomination for screenplay, and it does. It, 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 it is a much smaller scale version of a lot of what we're talking about here. It focuses on one firm, it focuses on the people of that firm, and it takes it down to a 
very, you know, human level. And it, but it's funny to call it a human level because they're, you know, they don't. No one in Margin Call expresses a lot of worry about the human condition or about the public good. You know, even Stanley Tucci. You know, I would say the the best of the human. He, he goes by the Tucci. The Tucci. Oh, we got a touch of the Tucci. We got a we yeah. got a big touch. The, oh, a little touch of the Tucci in this, but <laughs> but even the Tucci, who is you know ostensibly the the hero of the movie in some ways. I guess Kevin Spacey is also in some other ways, but not really because he's a fucking creep. But but the but the Tucci. Uh, even like you know, in his nicer moments, wh- what he laments is, uh, "I used to build bridges, and now I work in finance, and that makes me sad." But he doesn't worry about you know. At the end of the day, he takes his big payout and comes back and shuts up and 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 allows it all to happen. Like no one cares about what you're talking about. No one, even the the firm, everyone in the firm is selling these garbage things, burning all the bridges around them, destroying the reputation of the company, destroying other people's lives, and everybody goes along with it because it makes financial sense or it's their job or it's what they're supposed to do or they don't know any better. Like it's hard to say what everyone's motivation is, but it really does show in a lot of ways, just not, not necessarily what type of person gets into this job, but what this job calls upon you to do in the darkest moments, which is not help people, which is not benefit the world, which is not benefit the economy. Even it's just make money at the expense of everything around you. Yeah, so what is being depicted uh, when we open the, the movie is the Tooch gets fired um, and on his way out gives a, a, some sort of scan disc to uh, Zachary Quinto and basically says, look into this, be careful. And so Zachary Quinto's character spends all night looking into these numbers and uh, what is happening in, that, in these scenes where he's kind of in that dark office by himself is he's realizing that both the housing market and the mortgage-backed security market are about to go flat. And his company is very deeply invested in the housing market and the mortgage-backed security market or the CDO market. And the other thing he realizes at the same time is how over-leveraged, and I think uh, Paul Bettany called it levered, levered, (laughs) uh, how over-leveraged the company is. So he's also at the same time realizing that they are grossly in debt uh, they don't have the capital to make up for the losses uh, that will occur once all of these mortgage-backed securities and CDOs and the housing market tank. And so it's basically he's looking at a computer screen and the projections are telling him you're about to lose $100 and your company has $1 or your company has $10. And that's when he starts calling in the troops. He brings in Penn Bagley. He brings uh, back in Paul Bettany. And we're watching them slowly all realize what's happening. Fast forward, once all the bigwigs get there, um, they explain the situation to them as well, and then they have a choice to make. And the choice is, uh, do, we, do we eat the shit that we've bought, or do we, uh, the quote I believe is, be, be first, be smarter, or cheat? From um, the great Jeremy Irons. From the great Jeremy Irons, who I, and I have it written down here in my notes, just simply, Jeremy Irons fucks. Period. <laughs> like, like, well, it's like I have a real insight here. Let me let me flip through these pages. Oh, oh, yeah. Jeremy Irons fucks. Yeah, yeah, that's the right. biggest insight I have on this. <laughs> so Jeremy Irons makes the decision that they will be first because he knows what's going to happen. He understands the personality of the Wall Street culture. He understands that all of these other firms that realize the mistake they've also made are going to do this anyway. And so 
he tells uh, Kevin Spacey, who then has to tell all of the floor traders, or the, I, don't, I don't know if they're called floor traders or just traders, you have to go sell this shit, all of it. You know it's shit. You're selling it to people you've built relationships with and pretending it's not shit. And then at some point during the very day you sell it, they're going to realize it's shit. And so you're about to destroy every relationship you've ever had in Wall Street. But if you do it, we're going to give you $1.3 million. And if the whole floor does it, we'll give you another $1.3 million. <laughs> they depict that and, so well, too. The way they do that is with just, yeah. with just a series of Paul Bettany's conversations and just them getting less and less happy and more and more angry. And then all of a sudden, but, but you get a strong sense that, like, it's working. Like, you know, you're like, oh, this is working. Everything is going well. And by well, it means that everything is ruined for the world. But, but they're getting their $2 million. So, you know, good for them, I guess. Yeah. And so they uh, they do that, and the uh, the next step that they don't really depict is if this were 100% true to the the financial crisis, what probably happened next is after selling off all these toxic assets, they went or they were doing this simultaneously. They went and bought the fire insurance, the credit default swap on the very assets they just sold. So you know, Paul Bettany sells 100 whatever to his friend over at AIG or I don't know AIG. Lehman Brothers or something like that. And then the moment he puts the phone down selling the toxic asset, he picks up another phone and says, I want to take a fire insurance uh, policy out on the thing I just sold because it's about to burn down. That's being depicted in this film. It's a very short period of time. But I think in that, what do you, Steve, what do you think this covers? Like 12 hours? Something like that. It seems hours. like they figured out at the end of a day and then by the next morning. Yeah. Or maybe the end of it. Really, really, it's like probably 36 hours total. But the main sure. action is 12 to 18 hours for sure. But in that 24 to 36 hour time frame in the movie, they do depict what happened over weeks and months during the financial crisis, which I think is a pretty cool thing. And I think pretty effective too. Like I'm sure they, like you said, they leave them some things out, but I think it's okay because we're introduced only to really Bettany's team and Spacey's team and a little bit of risk management. So when we see, you know, we don't need to know how every bit of the sausage is made or like, we don't need to know all the steps that are all out of the bounds. We know that this is a, uh, what they're doing is absurd and, and bad and they shouldn't be doing it, but they're doing it anyway. And the nuts and bolts really don't come into play, I think, in a good way because the, the, the few times they do deploy jargon or explanations or exposition in this, I feel like it was very smartly dropped in here and there because they understand it's going to overwhelm the hell out of us. And so they give us what we need. They give us the characters. They, they explain the type of people they are. And they give us the little tidbits that we can all understand and the rest they just leave in the background. Well, and I think this is a really cool device they use with the tooch where <laughs> they they basically sum up 30 years of deregulation and lack of looking forward with just short-term thinking they let you know early on the tooch is with risk management they are starting the layoffs in the risk management department and then fast forward uh with demi moore's character they let you know that the risk management department has been completely gutted there's no one left in the risk there's essentially no one left in the risk management department I think it's just Penn Bagley, exactly. <laughs> Zachary Quinto, <laughs> yeah. and that's it. And that's a perfect like little allegory for you know in in a a movie that takes place over thirty six hours. They're summing up in a very kind of cheeky way like what happened in the thirty years prior. The people that were to- that were telling you this is wrong, this is going to fail, this is risky, were told to go fuck off. 
they were silenced, they were fired, whatever. They they were told that they're uh, not capitalists, they're socialists, whatever tool that was used. So I thought that was a really like a really cool and just clever way to to illustrate that with Stanley Tucci's character who's only in it for, what, five, six minutes total? Yeah, he's really infrequently in it. And they give him a little bit of heavy lifting with the whole, with the speech he gives about how he wishes he was making bridges instead of working in finance. And to the Tush's credit, that would be a really tough speech to deliver out of some other actor's mouth who, like you said, is barely in the movie. And we, we, they talk about him a lot, so we know he's relevant, but that's still a big little, a big lift. And he does a really great job with that speech. But again, I think, I think one of the things, even if Tucci is essentially the good guy, one thing this movie does really well as well is show how all of these people are just fucking alphas to the max. Like they are all just aggressive. They are all self-centered. They're all kind of assholes. Like even, like I said, even Tucci doesn't worry about like the ramifications of what's happening. He, you know, he's just not that kind of guy. Like he's aware of it. He's sort of resigned to it. Either you're resigned to it or you're go, 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 fuck everything. Like, you know, Spacey, uh, Kevin Spacey's character expresses a lot of reservations in the middle and is hesitant to hop on with the plan, but the second he sort of accepts that this is what they have to do, he goes back into pitch mode, you know? He's he's depressed, he's he's not lying to his his team, but he is telling them, like, you gotta do this horrible thing to make the monies. Like, it's like all they know is to sell and to move shit and to lie and to do everything they they participate in is for the sake of capitalism it's for the sake of finance it's for the sake of money and i think the movie does a great job and some characters are sympathetic some characters you you feel their plight and i think it does a good job of of showing the weight on their shoulders whether they're sympathetic or assholes but regardless of all that they're just all so much and like it's it's i think it's it's very hard to make that kind of movie and make it watchable and relatable and i think it does a good job even at the end like you don't really like anybody you're not really rooting for anybody at all but you're also not turned off you're also not disgusted you sort of like understand like well this is the world like it's there's just the, like we said gross so much on this podcast this episode but it is sort you just get a strong sense of this is i'm just revulsed by so much of this but i can't look away because i want to see who these people are and what they're doing and how it's sort of how their choices again got us to where we are yeah it's if, if inside job is a movie about the story of, of the technical aspects of what happened this is very much about the people that were present when it happened. You know, you walk away from, from inside job saying like, what type of person could ever fucking do this? Right. <laughs> Who are the people that can ever do this? And then boom, uh, margin call shows you, these are the people that can do it. Yep. And they're depicted by these actors. And each one of them is, is distinct in their own way. And I think it's very deliberately. So they all are kind of, you know, when you uh, look up the, IMDB facts of this, a lot of these characters are amalgamations of different characters from different banks. And this fictional bank that they all work at is probably an amalgamation of a few different of the big banks uh, and what they went through over a period of weeks to months, but depicted over 24 to 36 hours. And so, you know, you brought up uh, Spacey. I really, I don't think it, I, I think it's a bit of an on the nose metaphor that Spacey's dog is dying. I think Spacey's dog is very much his soul. Mm-hmm. Like his dog is this, this, uh, this old cancer ridden dog, uh, which I think is again, an out, a, a metaphor for what's left of Kevin Spacey's soul after being there for, what does he say he's been there for like 20, 30 years or something crazy like that. And finally, 
the dog dies. And this last thing that Kevin Spacey can, you know, get blue in the face, talking about how wrong it is, how bad it is, he still in the end sells out. Whatever is left of his conscience, whatever is left of his soul is now gone because he's decided to agree to continue on with this really shitty fraud laden scheme. And I think he even says it like, I'm always, I, I will always back the firm. I will always back the firm. And so as he buries his dog with President Roslin, his uh, ex-wife, <laughs> uh, next door, or uh, comes out to do it with him, he's burying the last vestige of anything that was good or hopeful inside of him after he's just done this kind of devil's deal. And I think <laughs> I put this in my notes as well. The only thing that could have made this movie better is that while President Roslin is talking to Kevin Spacey outside, if Edward James almost just came to the door in the background, was like, come back inside, honey. <laughs> Dressed as Admiral Adama. Oh, so he's not just Edward James Olmos. He's, he's, he's Admiral Adama. They're both playing Battlestar characters, but also Margin <laughs> That would have been an exciting like, twist if this was part of the BSG extended universe. I'd be into that. Yeah. But the other characters are, are fascinating too. Like, even Penn Bagley who's kind of like the, I don't know, he's he's like the little brother just tagging along the coattails. Of People his, are probably screaming uh, at you right now. I think it's Penn point. Badgley, by the way. So it's what a, who the fuck I'm just the Gossip yeah. Girl fans yeah. are going to be very upset with you. I just wanted to say it out loud so they don't not mad at me too. Well, he, he has this interesting quote where he's saying he made 250K, but then admits he doesn't really understand how. He says, like, I push numbers around and I make some bets with people around the world. And I made $250,000 from that. But he doesn't quite get how it all works. And so I think, like, he's this character that I think is probably very common on Wall Street or even, like, Silicon Valley, where they're just coming in being told you can make a ton of money. Don't worry about how it's done. You don't need to have a passion for it. You don't even really need to know what you're doing. Just come here and get the money. And he's that kind of empty-headed dude that's just there chasing the money. He can't stop talking about what Paul Bettany is making. Oh, he made $2.3 million. That is so important to him. And then you move. What, what did I was you think say, I think Zachary even, be- I think even character. a better character is, is Zachary Kinto, too. Like, who you think is the good guy for a second there. You think, oh, this is the character we can relate to. He's nice. He's smart. He's reasonable. But he's, you know, he might be the worst of all of them in the sense that he clear, he loves this for some reason. You don't really know why. And at the end, he sells out just as bad as anybody else. And he's he he's just it's it's a little more crushing because they make him seem like he might have hope. He might be a nice person. He might be able to get away from this. But for whatever reason, he has no interest in doing that. And he just gets by the end. He's he's as deep as it gets. You know, he's part of the gang. He's he's been indoctrinated. He survived this crisis and. Who knows what awaits him? Like it's maybe it, the thrill of the of the chase, I guess, of the money making is just it has outweighed any sort of moral quandaries he has, and it's very depressing. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you too. I, I texted you while we were watching this. He also is the representation of like how we value things in the United States. Like, isn't it sad that this guy is a fucking rocket scientist, and the way we've built our country? a rocket scientist would think that it's more beneficial to him to go into finance than it is to do fucking rocket science. And anybody who's like been in STEM in college, you see like how these grad students who are getting their PhDs live, they're living on like close to minimum wage. These are the people that are going to be making the cancer drugs that save our lives 20 and 30 years from now. And we treat them like shit. 
but we venerate these men on Wall Street that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars at 23 years old or millions of dollars in their 30s and 40s. We venerate them and we pretend they're these heroes, they're these titans of capitalism, and we all look up to them. It kind of it remind, <laughs> reminds me of the end of uh, Wolf of Wall Street, where you spend a whole movie seeing how shitty um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is. But what do you see at the very end? All of these people are staring bug-eyed at him, knowing he's a convicted felon, knowing he's a fraud, knowing he's a thief. Because as Americans, it is so in our DNA to want that, no matter the immorality assigned with it. And so I, I think it, his, you know, Zachary Quinto's character is a very sad one. It's one that reminded me that the priorities of our country are kind of in the wrong place. Yep. And then there's Jeremy Irons on the other side of things, who, again, he fucks, as you noted, 100% true. Super so fun. true. <laughs> but but he's, you know, when he shows up, shit gets real, in part because Jeremy Irons is a wonderful actor. But also, just he, he just has this concise confidence about him. And he is very honest in what he is there to do, which I think is... I remember the first time I saw this movie a while ago, I think for whatever reason, that's what stuck with me the most is when he says like, I'm a CEO, like I'm not here to, I'm not a rocket. He's been, he's, this is not his words, but he's like, I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not a business. Like, like talk, he's even says that Zachary Kinto, talk to me like I'm a child, you know? And he's sort of saying that I think to put Zachary Kinto at ease, but I think he's also, he like, as he gets into later, he's like, my job is to like, be big and and loud and make big decisions and see the future and be smart and like you know but his job is not to understand you know to serve the public good of course but also even understand what exactly they're doing like he's just supposed to be the straw that stirs the drink he's supposed to be the one who reads the reads the tea leaves and figures out what to do next and i think that is just given all the money he makes and all the power he has it's almost and that's also embarrassing in its own way. It's like the head of this company might probably doesn't even know what he's they're doing. You know, he doesn't probably even know what they're selling exactly, but he doesn't have to because he's a big charismatic, smart guy. And his job is not to understand the ins and outs of the business. It's to run the company. And, and I think that is, is impressive and, and really sad in its own, in its own way. And I think his characters also, and the, the, the words, the specific words he uses, um, are a commentary on two important things. The first is like, if you do some like reading into how the stock market works, a lot of it is just what perception, you know, the value of a stock is not necessarily the value of the product that the company or whatever is making. You know, if uh, GE, or I'm sorry, GM is worth $20 a, a stock, I'm just making these numbers up. And that's not necessarily a reflection of how well their cars run or how many cars are getting sold there. There's some sort of, of illusion that they've created to make people think they are worth this much. And so his character is embodying that. He doesn't know what the hell is going on. He even says, like, I can't hear the music anymore. I don't know what the hell's like. Talk to me like I'm a Labrador, he mm -hmm. says, because that's not his job. His job is the image. His job is to make people think that what his bank is selling is going to be worth $80 a share or whatever the hell he's going to do. And I thought he, he fucking nailed that. And I thought like his depiction of that was beautiful uh, as a metaphor for the stock market in general. And getting back to that quote of, I can't hear the music anymore. I thought that was also an interesting quote because 
the stock market changed so rapidly after the 80s or starting in the 80s and into the 90s and the 2000s where like derivatives markets start rising and no longer is it like, you know, I have a company, I have a good product, buy some stocks in my company so my good my company with good product and good management can grow. Those days were long gone, you know? It's no longer the, the that simple thing or we talked about bonds earlier, the simple bond market of the city wants to build a bridge, buy these bonds, and we're going to both improve the community and get you a, an interest, a reasonable interest rate at the end of it. These new like betting systems that the, the market had created to make more money quickly had even started to confuse men like Jeremy Irons. Like he can't even figure out what the fuck's happening anymore with how the stock market had, had, had grown and changed in such a quick time. Um, Another point on his talk with Zachary Quinto, and this is maybe my favorite part of the movie and maybe the part I think was most well done. I went on this long diatribe about how all this stuff happened. I actually wrote down how Zachary Quinto explained everything to uh, Jeremy Irons. It's about four sentences long and it's, it's brilliant. So I'm just going to repeat them because it's so well done. Essentially, the company went further and further into debt, buying bad mortgages and repackaging them into shitty CDOs and not assessing their risk properly because they got short-term profits from them. Either no one raised their hand or voice to say it was a bad idea, or the ones who did were silenced. Because they were so leveraged, meaning in debt, a loss in value of these CDOs that they were buying... uh, which means like the people whose mortgages make up the CDO stop paying their mortgage would mean a loss of the entire capital value of the company. In fact, more than the entire capital value of the company. So in four sentences, uh, Zachary Quinto's character essentially sums up everything that happened on the day of the crash uh, in this movie. And I thought that was really, really well done. And from a movie making perspective, I also noted that because they deploy that about what, 30, 35 minutes into the movie, which I think is brilliant because if you open with that, you're going to, you're going to drive people away. Like we open with that in this podcast, we might've driven some people away, but we're not making margin call. But I just think like when you're when you're trying to tell a dramatic version of this story, it makes no sense to throw all that at somebody from the start you know that would just be way too much but by the time we get to that point you have some sense of what's going on you know the characters and also the way obviously they present jeremy irons is brilliant because of just how good he is but also because he's truly like i don't understand this either like you tell me and you tell the audience at the same time and if they missed a little bit or they don't understand this or that we're gonna everyone's gonna win and it's it's just it's great great writing from jc chandor and like i think that's where he earns the oscar nomination in that scene because it's it the characters are great the characters are very well done in this movie and they give information like that in a way that it is somehow understandable and people and the audiences can work with it you know and i think that is really hard to do and they do a wonderful job of it yeah and, and then you know just to kind of put the cherry on top spacey in the very same meeting in one two sentences you will kill the market we are selling something you know has no value period and later says, you're knowingly putting people out of business, full stop. Like Jerry, just very terse, simple reminders to the audience that these kind of complex things that appears they're doing, this is the, the result. They are about to kill the market. And they and all really, do it anyway. That doesn't stop anybody right. from participating. And that illustrates like this really scary part of capitalism. This group of people, they know what's about to happen. They know what's about to like 
very immensely negatively affect millions of people. They sat on it because their survival and profit or just mitigation of their loss was more important than the well-being of millions of people in the country, not just their competitors on Wall Street, not just the dude that is working two blocks away that you want to get an edge on. These are people living in Texas and Iowa and Kansas that have retirement savings and pensions that have nothing to do with the rat race uh, of Manhattan. They know that this is about to ruin these people's lives and they sit on it and all they do is come up with a scheme to get out as clean and as rich as possible. Yep. And the saddest part of all is it's not uh, made up. It's not like, whoa, imagine this happening. It's like, this is literally what happens. Which, speaking of which, what did you think? I thought this was also a cool little scene. Uh, of the many in the movie, this is one of my favorites. It's the elevator scene when uh, whoever the mentalist is and to me more, to me more, they go into that elevator and they've got the janitor between them, and they're both like towering over her, and she's just calmly staring forward, not paying attention to a word they're saying. Uh, I think it's such a cool little thing. They're talking about what's happening over her. She has no clue. She's living in another world. And I think she is the representation of like Joe Sixpack all around the country that had no clue what was happening around them as these powerful people talked talked around them or talked above them about how they like what they had just done and what they were going to do about the most you know calamitous financial thing to happen in any of our lifetimes. And interesting in that scene, she also reminds him, uh, "I told you about this." Like that's when we find out too. Like. I told you about this multiple times. Yep. Yes. And then uh, they buy her silence too. Yep. They buy her silence. And another part I love about the scene when they, right after they buy her silence is she encounters the Tooch one more time. And I believe yeah. it's the last time you see either one of them. And I took away from that scene, again, talking about the humanity of these people, they, they try and have a conversation. I believe they work together. Like I believe she was his boss. They obviously knew each other for quite a long time. Things are frayed because they just let him go. But you think they might have this moment of kinship and connection, but they, and she, they try and discuss kids and it falls immediately flat. And then they start talking about their compensation packages and they perk right back up and start talking again. Yeah. Like there's just, they cannot communicate on a human level in any way, shape or form. Like no one in this movie can communicate to other human beings even those around them in any sort of way we would consider normal. And, but again, at the same time, it does not feel abnormal. It does not feel like they are aliens. They are just a very specific subset of people who are able are capable of making these choices that most of us would consider abhorrent. They just do it on a daily basis because it's how they're built. It's how the system they work in functions and they get, uh, you know, personal and professional pleasure out of it. And yeah. And so we've talked about, uh, a lot of the other characters, the one I want to mention, like fucking Paul Bettany is just throwing heat this oh, entire he's so movie. Good. He, he might be he's the best awesome. person in the whole movie. He's wonderful. He's got a bunch of great moments. I'll just point out my favorite one. I'm curious what yours is. It's when he's in the car with, with Penn Bad Bagely or whatever. <laughs> You're so close. Um, people want their cars and houses they can't afford. They want what we have to give them, but they don't. Uh, but they want to play innocent and act like they don't know where it came from. Fuck normal people. And that quote all is like very indicative of that, or it very well sums up that hubris we were talking about earlier. These guys that get into this world, they're smart enough to know that what they're doing is kind of shitty. It's kind of nihilistic. There is really no morality behind it. 
they know that they're picking the savings out of they've they've devised these new ways to pull the savings and the home equity out of people's pockets and the way he the way he verbalizes that that probably took him years and years to fully come to that notion that idea because he had to ignore his conscience long enough to come up with this again this hubris of thinking what i'm doing is right what i'm doing is not wrong i'm just you know another uh, brick in this wall and all of these normal people, they're just as bad as we are. They're the reason I'm doing this. So fuck them for their morality. And I just love that. And, and again, three, two, three sentences. He sums up the hubris of the person on Wall Street who's been responsible for this crash that is somehow still thinks they're the good guy. Yeah, and you summed it up so well because there is a scene previously where Bettany shows some sign of having a soul when, when the mentalist asks him, will he pick up the mantle if Spacey falters and Bettany says like you know I think you know I, I stand with with whatever Kevin Spacey's character's name is in terms of his morality and you think like oh man maybe Paul Bettany is a soul after all but like you said it, it's baked in like he he might have these vestiges of trying to do what is ostensibly right but he also has a worldview that just is so foreign to so many of us like whatever has allowed him to continue doing this job has shaped him in a way that even if he is claims to be capable of a moral decision, he may not even understand what a moral decision is anymore because he does not have anyone's benefit in mind. Like he, I think he gets that you should not sell a bad asset. You should not sell it and burn your bridges and ruin your company. Like I think he logically understands those concepts. But the idea of the larger thing of like this will ruin lives, I don't think he gives a fuck about any of that. So he has morality to a point or like rationality to a point, but it, the point is very, very clear and is not very far away from where he is all the time. Well, and then the, the roof scene he has with uh, uh, Zachary Quinto and Penn Badgley is also great, where he's like, oh, you made $2.3 million? How'd you spend it? And he just straight up is like, well, you spend what's in your pocket, right? And so like Penn Badgley and Zachary Quinto are looking at him like he's these, this god, like, oh, you got $2.3 million? You must have the world. You must be so happy. And then you find out, like, eh, I just blew it on dinners and whores and, yeah. and cocaine and drugs, like, the same thing that if you had $100 in your pocket and you were an addict or you were like a soulless person that um, that, that was like yearning for, for some sort of rush, even if you had $100 in your pocket, you'd spend it on the same goddamn things. So like it, it was also an interesting, you know, I guess it was a two minute scene showing that like no matter how much money these guys get, it will never be enough for them, ever. There is no amount of money that they will make that will make them settle and be like, okay, I've made enough. I think I need to start thinking about the community. I need to start thinking about uh, the mom and pops who are investing in my shop more and like decrease my compensation to a more reasonable level. That will never happen. Or just take a stand and, I, and quit, you know, like, or just be like, I'm good. And like, this is now uh, beyond the things I'm comfortable with. So I will leave this job. Like they, they can't and won't do that. So this also t this also ties into uh, going back to inside job. They brought that psychologist in who works with a lot of these Wall Street guys. I thought he had some awesome quotes. So he says the guys handling all of the capital in our country are quote risk takers and impulsive. They love strippers and cocaine and prostitutes and quote have a blatant disregard for the impact their actions have on society. End quote. That's the type of people we venerate. That's the type of people we ascribe some sort of false morality to because they were financially successful. 
And I think that is a sickness in our, our society that needs to be fixed before any of this will get fixed. Otherwise, our society will continue to think that any sort of regulation, any sort of sensible laws are just socialism. And uh, we are capitalists and capitalism is good and moral. Pure capitalism is what we want. We will continue. Uh, if we continue to have that idea, men like this, with blatant disregard for the impact their, ha their actions have on society, will continue to control all of the capital in our society. Yep. And I think we both would agree that um, one of the ways to try and fix that to a certain extent is prosecuting these people. Uh, the Barack Obama administration did not do that. The Donald Trump administration certainly has not done that. Will the next gener uh, will the next administration do that? I do not know. We will see. But obviously, any sort of punishment right now, no one is being punished for these crimes. And so, at this point, I'll just take regulation. Honestly, yeah. at this point, like. Maybe I'll know, I would love personally to watch these guys be hauled off in, in cuffs. But right now, I'll just settle for regulating the derivatives market. Um, they brought up Dodd-Frank, and we, we don't have time to go into it, but like Dodd-Frank is actually pretty toothless. And so hopefully, you know, in the, the next few years or with this new kind of progressive wave coming in, um, we'll see some change uh, in the way that Wall Street is regulated. I will say I think there will have to be another disaster before that ever happens, but I hope I'm wrong because this, you know, you and I have lived through a couple of these now for various reasons, recessions and uh, pandemic related or otherwise, and it is a crushing blow on your psyche and the psyche of the world around you. And I hope we don't have to go through another one to actually see change, but I would not bet money on the good nature of human beings winning out. Well, and just a reminder, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying, of course, I support well-researched, well-implemented, sensible regulation. But for anybody who thinks that regulation will lead to a loss in profits or a loss in prosperity, just remember, a lack of regulation saw trillions with a T, multiple trillions of dollars, leave the economy in a matter of days. That's what unfettered, unregulated capitalism did to our prosperity. Just keep that in mind. And I hope one thing these movies do for people who watch them is is put a face to that. It's not just the world. The world didn't just go haywire, you know? And you touched on this before. It's not just, oh, the market's collapsed and so I lost my life savings. Oh, that sucks. But, you know, the markets, they're crazy. Like, no, no. The markets are – there are people who, if they're not in charge of the markets, certainly push us off this cliff. And to put a – fictional face on them or a very real face on the, those markets I hope I hope has made a lot of progress here in showing people why this happened so people don't think oh shucks man it just it sucks to lose my money it's like no no people took your money and they flushed it down the toilet and as as citizens as humans we can push back on that and not allow that to be the case anymore and they didn't just flush it down the toilet they before flushing it down the toilet they gave themselves tens of billions of uh, dollars in uh, bonuses as they did it yes that's very right chris you watched a lot of other movies and books this has been a long one but i would love to get your quick take on if there's anything else that our listeners should check out that you think really illustrates this crisis in even more detail sure and i i say this with humility this is just my personal anecdotal like studying of all this stuff i think there's a whole bunch of stuff one could read about this that may be better than the stuff i've read but i think the two books i'd recommend are The Big Short by Michael Lewis and Griftopia 
uh, by Matt Taibbi. Uh, the movies I watched leading up to this, uh, Panic, uh, which was a Vice on HBO show, uh, was great. And they actually interviewed a lot of the main characters. And so this particular movie shows like, what was it like to be in the room with Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, Timothy Geithner, uh, as this was happening. These were the guys that were the head of the Treasury, the Fed, and Geithner was the head of the New York Fed. Um, really interesting. It probably plays with those guys with kid gloves because, like, for example, Paulson was one of the – I think he led um, Goldman Sachs for a long time and was spearheading a lot of the deregulation that led to this, and they never confront him about that. Uh, but it is an interesting movie. Uh, Too Big to Fail, uh, which I think was uh, an HBO movie, was also very interesting. Uh, the Flaw was another good documentary to watch on this. Um, the Michael Moore Capitalism a Love Story was fine. I didn't think it was the best of all of these. Uh, and then the movie The Big Short, I think, is also really well done. Uh, so those would be the things I would say give it a give it a watch if you want a better understanding and then there's a, a thousand five to ten minute youtube videos that are easy to digest uh, that can explain all this stuff too yeah if you if you have a hankering for more depressing commentary on the the flaws of our society and our financial systems uh, that perpetuate to this day those are all sound like wonderful resources but i will say chris i really like knowing about this it's one of those things i imagine this is how you feel as well it's depressing it's tough to see it is really exhausting to know or capable of and to know that people like you and i cannot stop any of this but i i take solace in the fact that again the, the information that we take in and understanding this and knowing this and not acting like it is out of our reach or out of our understanding is reassuring in its own small way because i it reminds me that it is penetrable it is and it, even if i can't fix it or help it i can i can know and i can vote and march and and support causes that that try and that that there's it's, it's gonna be a long long slog to get out of this hole we're in i think as as like you said as part of like the american psyche and the american culture but i i do like to think there is small progress being made in in pushing people to realize that these are among the greatest threats we face as a people. Yeah. I think in educating myself, even just to the, the basic fluency of Amy from Congo, uh, <laughs> even getting there, I feel like I've, I've like pulled the curtain on the wizard of Oz, right? Like before I did any reading or watching on this, all I could see was the tidal wave. Right. And I would just get inundated with the terms and, I was just completely helpless to understand how it happened, how it might happen again, why it happened, et cetera. And now I kind of have this understanding of, oh, no, 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 I can point to multiple things like, nope, that that's where it happened, that's where it happened, that's where it happened. And it's no longer this inexplicable tidal wave. Now I kind of see where the earthquake was first. And again, like once you see that it's just human error, it's human greed, and it's something intervenable uh, upon, I think that does give me some kind of perverse comfort. Well, you've you've consumed lots of this, so I'm glad you get some comfort out of it as well, because otherwise it'd be very, very depressing. While simultaneously being terrified that no one has the will to actually do it. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's that's the underlying concern that I have as well. But that's also something that's out of our control. So watch these movies, read these books, learn a little bit, and maybe you will feel, have a little more, you'll be able to wrap your, your arms and, and brain around it a little more, which provides some solace. Steve, do you think this episode was 
Which episode is nerdier, this one or the Dune episode? <laughs> I don't know. I think this one, the Dune one is nerdier because there is no applicable value to understanding Dune in terms of being a functional human being. And you could technically listen to this and go, well, I learned something during this In Real Deep podcast. So I think... The In Real Deep community probably thinks I'm such a fucking virgin. <laughs> but then they'll listen to the Armageddon one and they'll go, oh, he fucks just like Jeremy Iron. Like, just like so Jeremy cool. Iron. You're right, okay. <laughs> You've redeemed yourself. <laughs> if you want to hear that Armageddon episode or many others that feature both Dr. Chris and my typical co-host, Andrew Johnson, you can find our archives at inrealdeep.com. You can also find this podcast everywhere podcasts are delivered. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us out a ton, and we really appreciate it. And we appreciate you, Dr. Chris. Thanks for coming on from Japan, giving us your time, your energy, your knowledge. It's wonderful, and you've informed us, and you're not a virgin, and you're not a freshman. You're a cool guy, and you just happen to know a lot about the financial crisis at this point in time. Oh, thank you, and sayonara. (laughs) Sayonara, indeed. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Adios.